from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Folklife Today podcast. I'm John Fenn, the head of research and programs at the American Folklife Center in the Library of Congress. I'm here with Steve Winnick, a folklife specialist at the center and the creator of the Folklife Today blog. Hi, folks. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that last time we talked to our AFC interns, and they talked about items that appealed to them based on our blog series, Caught My Eye and Caught My Ear. We thought it would also be fun to do a staff edition where John and I and another staff member introduced our items. That's right. So let's get started. We're here with Jennifer Cutting, a frequent guest on the podcast and a folklife specialist at the AFC also. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, John. It's Steve. It's good to have you here, Jennifer. So the items we're talking about with you are commercial recordings of Morris dance tunes that are part of the National Jukebox. They're played by house bands belonging to the record companies, and I'll just clarify for our listeners that these recordings have caught several eyes and ears around the staff. So you may have seen a posting about them on our Facebook page, or you may have seen them on our blog in a post by Stephanie Hall. But Jennifer really is our expert on Morris Dance and its associated tunes. Um, she's been a Morris dancer and musician herself, and she curates our most relevant collections. So we're happy to have her take on these tunes. So first of all, Jennifer, what ties together the tunes we're going to talk about? Well, these tunes were all collected from the tradition of Morris dance music by a man who was a musician, a dancer, and a collector. His name was Cecil Sharp. Now, Sharp was a trained musician, but he never really made it as a composer. Uh, in 1899, when he was 40 years old, he was staying with his mother-in-law for Christmas in her cottage in Headington, Oxfordshire. And on Boxing Day, that's the day after Christmas, for those who don't know, he looked out the window and he saw this picturesque Christmas custom of a group of Morris dancers who turned out to be the now famous Headington Quarry Morris. He quickly got a pen and some paper, and as the dancer danced and the musician played, he notated two of the tunes. Sharp went outside and had a chat with that musician, a man named William Kimber, who played the concertina, and he arranged for Kimber to come back the next day. Well, that was the beginning of a lifelong fascination with Morris dancing, and Sharp, after that, dedicated himself to documenting, preserving, and reviving the Morris dance tradition. So how did these commercial recordings of Morris music come about with Sharp listed as the author? Well, in the days before field recordings were ever released to the public, the usual way for a collector like Sharp uh, to publish materials was to transcribe it, that is to notate it by ear. As he heard the tune, he would write it out on staff paper with five lines and four spaces directly from the playing of a musician into onto manuscript paper, as I said, and then publish it in a book or sheet music portfolio. 
And while Cecil Sharp did make a few field recordings in his life, he really was of that older school who wrote most everything down uh, or transcribed by ear the melodies. So he developed relationships with some of the best Morris musicians of his era, uh, people like fiddler Jinky Wells from Bampton in the Bush. And he wrote their music down and published it in books and in sheet music. Now, he also wrote down descriptions of the dances, and his Morris dance books are among the best documentation of the tradition from his era. So these tunes were published in transcribed form, that is, notated form, with Sharp listed as the author. So that explains his name being on all of these recordings, but there's more to a few of these sessions, isn't there? Yes. We have Cecil Sharp tunes from 1913, 1915, 1916, and 1922, but... The ones from 1915 and 1916 are special because from late 1914 through 1918, Sharp spent most of his time in the United States. Now, to backtrack a bit, after becoming interested in dance music, Sharp also became fascinated by folk songs, and he traveled around England in the early years of the 20th century collecting songs. He initially came to America in 1914 when a theater production he was involved in as music director traveled here from London. He wasn't eligible to serve in World War I, and the war, let's face it, made Britain a very dreary place with bombing and rationing and whatnot, so he resolved to stay in the U.S. a while. People like Olive Dame Campbell convinced him that he could find great folk songs in the southern Appalachian Mountains, so he spent the springs and summers of 1916 through 1918 in the mountains, and the rest of the time, based in New York, taking side trips across the country. He was able to work uh, by writing music for theater and lecturing on English folk music. So these 1915 and 1916 recording sessions occurred while Sharp was here in the United States. Exactly. And for those sessions, Sharp personally oversaw the recordings, looking over and correcting the scores as prepared by the record companies and overseeing the conductor and the band. So these recordings of Cecil Sharp's tunes, even though they sound so different from folk music as it's played in the tradition, are interesting because Sharp was in the room with the band when they were recorded. Well, let's hear one. Okay, this is a 1915 recording of a tune he called the Tideswell Processional Morris, which he collected at Tideswell in Derbyshire. Thank you. 
So Jennifer, as a Morris dancer and musician, how does that sound to you? Well, first off, <laughs> it sounds much more polite and well-regulated <laughs> than it does when the village band uh, plays it at Wakes Week in Tideswell, which it's the last week in June. In the field, you hear the sound of brass players in real life. You hear them losing their embouchures as they get tired and then getting a gust of renewed energy as they get a second wind. And this is a very orchestral sound, kind of an art music sound. Also, dance music that is as repetitive as this, if you're going to turn it into art music, you might want to introduce a little more variation mm. than there is in this score. But you know me, I'm never short on opinions. <laughs> so I'll, I'll say that I have a special feeling for these sessions, and that's because before I came to work at the Library of Congress, I was one of the regional folklorists for New Jersey, and I was headquartered in Camden, New Jersey, in an old library building that was part of the Victor Talking Machine campus, donated to the city by Eldridge Johnson, the Victor founder. And in the era that we're talking about, the teens and 20s, Camden, New Jersey was a real musical crossroads because Victor Studio was there. So that's where Sharp went to direct our session, but it's also where Enrico Caruso went to sing opera, and a little later it's where the Carter family went to record as well. So naturally, I got to take a look at the Victor Studios while I was in Camden, and it's actually in a building that's right next to the building where uh, I used to work. Um, but I've been in the room where these recordings were made, and because of this abiding interest in all things Camden and all things folklore, a few years ago I actually looked up these sessions in Cecil Sharp's diary to see if he said anything about them. So the diary is at the Vaughan Williams Memorial Library in London, but now they're online, so you can mm -hmm. actually look them up yourself. So here's what Sharp himself said about the session where Tideswell Processional Morris was recorded. He said, Arrived at Philadelphia at 8.15, went to Mackenzie's, had some breakfast, shaved, etc., and went off to Camden to supervise gramophone records. Great fiasco. Scores badly written. Resolved to postpone work and go to New York early tomorrow morning. So the scores were so bad he gave up? Apparently. Um, Sharp published his tunes as piano arrangements, and then the record companies employed band arrangers who would score it up for band. So Sharp seems to have hated the orchestration so much that he gave up. So when did he get back to it? Not for about a year. In March of 1916, he finally went back to Camden, and he recorded several tunes that he'd collected from oral tradition, and also a few he had adapted from older tune books. Let's hear Selinger's Round, which is a tune Sharp adapted from the 17th century collection of John Playford. Thank you. 
All right, Jennifer, what can you tell us about how that one sounds? Well, because I play this tune on a diatonic button accordion and I have a limited range of chords, the chords used by this orchestrator sound like they're all over the place. There are minor chords where there should be major ones and major chords where there should be minor ones. But you know, variety being the spice of life, it's fine. And I have to say that Sharp also liked this session much better than the previous one. So he wrote, caught 8 a.m. train for Philadelphia and reached Camden Victor Lab at 10.30. Thank heavens I had a new conductor, one Mr. Rogers, who really was a musician and knew his work. Consequently, I was able to finish off all the records. Good to know. I'd like to play one more tune from the Sharp recordings. This is the Helston Furry Dance. It's a seasonal Morris dance played on May 8th in the town of Helston. Steve has actually written several blogs about this tune. That's right. I've traced it back to 1802 when it was published by a musician named Edward Jones as the Cornish May Song. It certainly goes back to the 18th century and quite possibly further. And in the blog that accompanies this podcast, you'll find links to all my posts on this song and tune. Oh, great. Let's hear the Helston Furry Dance. So again, that was the Helston Furry Dance. All right, Jennifer, how does the record sound? Well, this tune is traditionally played by a brass band, so the Cecil Sharp recording sounds more natural than, you know, brass band interpretations of fiddle music or, you know, accordion music. But the chord progressions in the orchestration are a good deal more complex than the way the village band plays this song, giving it a very august and majestic sound rather than that of a kind of jolly village dance. So it's a, it's an entirely different thing, but I really like it. As I like to say, you can't keep a good tune down, and a good tune will sound great in all kinds of different settings, as Helston Furry Dance does. 
And I'll add that this this particular version was recorded for Columbia Records, so he didn't go to Camden for this. This was recorded in New York City, and Sharp supervised that session too, which he called a truly terrible experience. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he just he just hated recording, I think. But in those sessions, which spanned two days, he re-recorded most of the tunes from the first Victor sessions, which you'll recall he had called a great fiasco. So I think he did ultimately get records he considered more satisfactory out of these. October 1916 sessions. Of course, these Cecil Sharp tunes aren't technically in American Folklife Center collection. They're commercial recordings and part of the Library of Congress's National Jukebox. But they have connections to many of our collections, some of which Jennifer curates. And you recently had a sad occasion to write about one of those collections on our blog, didn't you, Jennifer? Yes, that's right. Sadly, my good friend Tony Barrand passed away in January. His whole name, Anthony Grant Barrand, or as we called him, Tony, was a singer, musician, a dancer, and a folklorist who donated the Anthony Grant Barrand collection of Morris, Sword, and Clog Dancing, AFC number 2003-005, to the American Folklife Center in 2003. And Tony's collection contains over 250 films of traditional folk dance along with the associated manuscripts. Uh, the collection not only documents the American, Canadian, and English teams dancing at Marlboro Morris Ales between 1976 and the present, and Barron's own Morris teams performing on annual May outings over the same period, but it's also really rich in sword dance, mumming plays, and old-style wooden shoe or clog dancing. And in some ways, the most important and distinctive aspect of the Barrent collection is the way that it captures many of the same Morris and sword teams dancing every year over more than a quarter century at the Marlboro Morris Ales and in other community performances. There are great possibilities for study given this kind of chronological documentation because it's possible to watch the dancers progress from beginners to experienced performers, age, and then be replaced by a new generation of dancers. And when Tony donated his collection in 2003, I did a long interview with him and we used that as the basis for four blog posts. So we'll link to those in the post associated with this episode as well, so you can read those if you like. In addition to making this collection, Tony, who was born in England, has been a proponent of English folk traditions in America for more than 50 years. He was a longtime dancer as well as a singer and musician with the John Roberts and Tony Barron duo and with the quartet Noel Sing We Clear. His death was such a huge loss to the North American folk music and dance community, and we really miss him. Well, we're very glad you were able to do a tribute on the blog, and thanks for being on the podcast. Yes, thanks very much, Jennifer. Oh, you're both so very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. So... We're going to shift gears here almost literally because, John, when you wrote a Caught My Eye post, it was about a machine from what seems like a bygone era. Yes. I wrote that a few years ago during my first weeks here at the American Folklife Center. 
They were kind of a whirlwind of meetings, trainings, and orientations to all aspects of the Library of Congress. Um, and as I passed through the American Folklife Center's reading room, one object repeatedly caught my eye, a Nagra 4S reel-to-reel field recorder, which was perched atop a filing cabinet full of reference materials. In addition to being useful, it's a beautiful object, and I couldn't help thinking that it probably holds within its circuitry a host of tales about the places it's been. Yes, and our reading room has moved since then, I'll say, but the Nagra is still there on a shelf in our new reading room as well, so you can come visit it. Um, but, uh, but you know, in the days before digital recorders, these Nagras were really kind of state-of-the-art, weren't they? Oh, yes. Portable Nagra tape machines were central to on-site professional audio recording since the Switzerland-based Kudelsky SA company revealed the first production model in 1953, the Nagra II. Designed by Polish inventor Stefan Kudelski, over the years, the Nagra line proved to be rugged and sturdy. They were favored by motion picture recordists, reporters, and ethnographers around the world. One thing many people who use Nagras around the world might not know is the meaning of the name. True. The name Nagra derives from the Polish verb nagrak and translates as it will record. Huh. Folklorists have made good on this name by using Nagra machines to document music and song, verbal art, cultural soundscapes, and interviews around the globe. So what's the history of the American Folklife Center's Nagras? The 4S model is a stereo recorder introduced in 1971. The American Folklife Center acquired several 4S machines to support our own field projects, and there is a good chance that the very machine I've admired in the reading room ran tapes that are in the Montana Folklife Survey, the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project, the Omaha Indian Music Presentation, and a number of fieldwork collections created by our founding director, the late Alan Jabor. You can find a lot of those recordings on our website. In addition to using Nagras for its own fieldwork efforts, the center provided these machines and other field recording gear to folklorists through the Library of Congress Equipment Loan Program. Emerging in the early 1930s, this program tracked the arc of portable recording technologies, from instantaneous disc cutters weighing several hundred pounds to the relatively light Nagra 4S, which tipped the scales at about 15 pounds, fully loaded with batteries and tape. Wow. Yeah, I know that the strategy of lending equipment and recording supplies to a network of regional collectors was really productive for us, both in building the collection and in creating a community of folklorists with ties to the Library of Congress. That's right. It's a very important part of our history. Of course, with advances in portable audio technology starting in the cassette era of the late 1980s and on through the current digital era, reliable field recording gear has become much lighter and less expensive. But the American Folklife Center holds on to Nagra as an acknowledgement of the history of our field. The few we have on display at the AFC embody the material culture behind folklife fieldwork, representing examples of the technological heritage of the center and the important documentation efforts we have supported over the years. So let's hear something recorded on one of our Nagras. Unfortunately, the field workers didn't write down the serial number of the Nagra they were using, so we can't be sure this was the very same machine on display in our reading room, but this recording was made on one of our Nagras. It's a set of jigs played by Liz Carroll on fiddle and Tommy McGuire on button accordion in Chicago in 1977. Thank you. 
So that set of jigs by Liz Carroll and Tommy McGuire was recorded on one of our nagras by Mick Maloney in 1977. And an item that caught your eye some years ago relates to that, doesn't it, Steve? That's right. Um, years ago, I noticed a photo we have of Mick Maloney taken by Jonas Dovidenas in 1977. And it shows Mick at the annual Midwest Flocule at Bogan High School in Chicago. He's all geared up to record with the trusty Nagra strapped to him with headphones and a mic. And it's on the roll of film uh, sandwiched between photos of Liz Carroll, so we know what Mick was recording at that time, which are some of these great Liz Carroll recordings we have. And of course, I was reminded of this photo when Mick passed away unexpectedly this past July. Yeah, indeed, a, a sad event. Um, tell us a little bit about Mick Maloney. Well, Mick Maloney was one of the leading figures in Irish music on both sides of the Atlantic, as well as a great folklorist. He was born in Limerick, Ireland, and began his career as a musician back in his teens. He was in that first generation of musicians to combine the popular ballad group sound of bands like the Clancy Brothers with traditional instrumental music. And he was in some bands like the Emmett Folk Group and the Johnstons, which were important trendsetters in Irish music during the 1960s and early 1970s. So in 1973, the Johnstons played at the Philadelphia Folk Festival, and Mick Maloney met Kenneth S. Goldstein, who was both one of the organizers of the festival and a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And Mick uh, decided to stay in the United States and study folklore with Kenny at Penn. And while working on his PhD, Mick became one of the foremost musicians on the Irish music scene in America, as well as one of the foremost documentarians working in the field. He brought together the Irish ethnic music scenes in different American regions into more of a national scene where everyone knew everyone else, and he just mentored and influenced everyone on that scene. And I'll say that it was on Mick's advice that I applied for graduate school, so he is partly to blame for me being a folklorist. <laughs> he did earn that PhD, and he taught widely. Um, so my first teaching experience was actually as Mick's teaching assistant at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, at the time of his death, he was a global distinguished professor at New York University in the Irish Studies program and the music department. Now, in 1999, Mick was awarded the National Heritage Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, which is the highest official honor a traditional artist can receive in the United States. Mick was also interested in the intersections of Irish folk music with other styles of music, which led to several research projects, including If It Wasn't for the Irish and the Jews, which he spoke about at the Library of Congress in 2009. And you can see a video of that lecture on the Library of Congress website. And I'll finally say that Mick has been generous with time, music, and activism, playing frequent benefit concerts for charity. And in recent years, he's lived part-time in Thailand, where he was involved in a charity home and school for poor children. So an all-around wonderful musician, folklorist, and friend. You can see that picture of Mick on the Folklife Today blog as well. So now let's thank our guest, Jennifer Cutting, our engineer, John Gold, and Mike Turpin and Jay Kinlock for the use of the studio. And of course, thanks to you, Steve. Thanks to you as well, John, and also to the musicians and collectors we've featured on this podcast. So to play us out, how about another recording made by Mick on the Nagra? One of the other up-and-coming musicians Mick captured at the 1977 FLA was a young flute player and dancer named Michael Flatley, who later went on to star in Riverdance and Lord of the Dance. Let's hear some tunes from Michael Flatley. Until next time.
This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.